2: Happy is the first word of the last chapter of Pride and Prejudice. It's about Mrs. Bennett, but it must be noted that she is happy because her daughters got what they deserved. Happy, wealthy marriages. Chapter 61 operates as a kind of epilogue. It gives us the short-term fates of each of the characters. Mrs. Bennett becomes so happy that she becomes a little less annoying but no less ridiculous. Mr. Bennett misses Lizzie terribly, so visits Pemberley often. Jane and Bingley can't stand being so near the Bennetts, so they go off and buy a house near Pemberley. Lydia and Wickham overstay so long and so often at the Bingley's that Bingley sometimes thinks about making a subtle, slightly rude comment to them. Mary and Kitty both begin to thrive under their changed circumstances. Lydia is always in need of a little money, but it is specifically stated that her reputation is unharmed by the way that she was married. Caroline and Lady Catherine both come to terms with Lizzie's invasion of Pemberley, and the gardeners visit often. It's delightful. What can be better? Here is Elsie Mitchie on why this book and this ending are so satisfying.
1: I love them because they do feel so secure. You get in an Austen novel and you know it's going to end in a way that you're going to be happy. But I think around the edges is always fear. I think that's why the comfort. I mean, I always think, for example, supposing Mr. Collins had come before, Jane met Bingley, and he had courted Jane, who is so nice and polite and does what people want. Would Jane have felt she had to marry Collins because it would save the estate? I mean, I feel as if in Austen's novels, there's always these other as-if plots where you feel how things could go really wrong, right? And she was very—it's also a world that's full of bankruptcies, right? And also, you know, the French Revolution. I mean, there, a lot of dramatic things are going on, and people have often talked about how her novels feel so comfortable. But I think you always feel around them this world where things could go bad. And I think that's part of their power. Right I mean, they're, they're fighting to say, "Wait a minute, in the midst of all this stuff, we can have a novel that makes a narrative that makes us happy, right?
2: Pride and Prejudice was pressed into my hand in May of 1998 by Margaret Yi, my 10th grade English teacher. I still have the copy she gave me. Margaret is now the manager of school programs at Chong Moon Lee Center for Asian Arts and Culture. But she taught Austin during her many years as a high school English teacher. So I got her on the phone and asked her, why does she think it is important to hand this book to 15-year-olds? And here is one of the things that Mrs. Yee said.
3: Everybody in that book is hustling, basically, right? You you feel for them because they have to find their place in the world. What you don't want to, to be, though, is unaware of yourself, right? Not aware of your own foibles and your own faults.
2: Who doesn't relate to this? That, as Elsie Mitchie says, this world is a place where things could go badly. So you have to hustle and find your place in the world. And so isn't it delightful to spend time with Lizzie, someone who it turns out has a palace as her place in the world? But here is something else that Mrs. Yee said that I think is why we love this novel so passionately and so ubiquitously. All sorts of books give us wish fulfillment and happy endings, but Austen always does it with a twist, and it is that twist that keeps us unsatisfied and is therefore satisfying. Here is Mrs. Yee again.
3: I I find it really interesting that at the end of the book, you know, Austin always redirects, right? And you think the words I do, which have to do with getting married, would be said between Lizzie and Darcy. But instead, when she says I do, it's an answer to her father's question. Do you really love him? And she says, I do. And I found that super telling. The I do to him makes it clear. I see you in a new light now and I choose Mr. Darcy. He's really my equal he really sees me for who I am. Yes, dad, you saw me for who I am. You love me, but you, you don't know the real the full me.
2: Austin ends the novel not with saying Darcy and Lizzie were happy, but that this is the web of people in their lives, and their lives can only be as good as the people around them allow. It is a novel about relationships, about promises to care for people, even if you don't like them, even if you want them out of your house, even if you only find their appearance tolerable. It is about the fact that we say I do, not just to our romantic partners, but to our sisters, our best friends, and our parents, too. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Lauren Sandler. And this is Live from Pemberley from Hot and Bothered. So Lauren, you have one more chance to teach us something. Professor Sandler, what do you have?
4: Well, I mean, yeah, we've we've come to the end. And a term that I actually didn't even know was an acronym within romance literature until I learned it recording this podcast is the H-E-A, the happily ever after. And of course, Austin doesn't say happily ever after at the end of this, but in many ways, This is seen as one. And so I just wanted to think about the origins of this, the happily ever after, because initially, historically, happily ever after meant heaven. It meant happy in the ever after. And that was the case for a really long time, you know, in the 16th century, when things would and happy ever after. It meant eternal happiness in heaven. But by the 18th century, that has changed. By the 18th century, happily ever after means together forever in wedded bliss. But interestingly, about 50 years after this book has come out, That has changed to children's stories. So happily ever after becomes the way that fairy tales end in the mid 19th century. And it means, of course, princess marries prince, lives in domestic bliss in castle, which to be fair, that's essentially what is happening here. Right. Lizzie is marrying a prince in all practical senses of the word, even if he doesn't carry that honorific. And Pemberley is pretty much a castle but, you know, Austin doesn't say happily ever after. And Austin does give us enough, enough questions, enough things to maybe poke at whether or not this is a happily ever after.
2: I think it is so particularly interesting that around, you know, the 1850s, it becomes too cheesy of a thing to say to adults. And so it becomes something that you promise to children. And yet we still have these HEAs in romance novels. I will say that happily ever afters in romance novels do not usually say the phrase happily ever after. They are happily ever afters, but that isn't necessarily a phrase that is said. But it's so interesting that it goes from this religious context and ends up being something that we consider kind of childish.
4: I mean – This sense of happily ever after that Austin is giving us is still very freighted in adulthood and in complication and in nuance. And in fact, you know, that is so much of what I am taking away from this reading of the book is that this isn't just distilled into a simple Lizzie meets Darcy, enemies to lovers, you know, meet cute to the castle, story that actually it is far more nuanced. And there are so many relationships braided together here and so many complications of capital, of gender, of history, of broken dreams that then fix themselves in certain ways. But, you know, wherever you go, there you are. And wherever you go, there your family is. Yeah. And there are a couple of
2: really telling things, right? That Jane and Bingley, the two most even-tempered people in the world, cannot stand to be close to Jane's family. Mr. Bennett likes to visit when he's not expected, right? He likes to sort of annoy, bomb the Darcys. There are a lot of hints that it's not perfect happiness, Wickham isn't welcome in the house, but Lydia still comes. Lydia doesn't even get through a congratulatory letter to Lizzie upon her marriage without asking for money. Yeah, it is this great happily ever after. And yet it's all with like a toothache.
4: Yeah, and through this whole season, whether we've been explicit or not, we've given ourselves the directive to think about each character in each chapter in terms of what Austin is telling us about love, ridiculousness, and power. And, you know, she gives us this incredible breakdown. It's almost like an outline. It's practically bullet points of where each one of these characters lands. Should we just sort of go through them and see see where we're at? Yeah, it's like a curtain call.
2: It's like they each get to come and bow in their own little way. But yes, let's go through.
4: Well, I mean, obviously, she very intentionally kicks us off with Mrs. Bennett.
2: Who, Lauren, I had an aha moment about Mrs. Bennett. The text tells us like she does not become less ridiculous. Invariably silly. She remains yes. invariably silly. <laughs> you do get the sense that she is less nervous. She is only occasionally nervous now, but she was still right. And I was just thinking that that is a Shakespearean definition of a fool right? You have the court jester who comes on stage and is the fool, is the drunkard peeing across the stage in Macbeth, but who is speaking the truth. And that is what Mrs. Bennett is. She's is the fool speaking the truth, which then my question is, does that make her
4: less ridiculous or is her ridiculousness baked in? I think that this notion of Mrs. Bennett as a Shakespearean fool is just so brilliant and so accurate that, you know, how did I not see it? And what took you so long, Vanessa? (laughs) But, you know, I do think about how it appears in Shakespeare that whenever there's a fool, the fool is performing ridiculousness. That, you know, maybe the drink is not part of the performance, but there is always this act, the jester's act. And it does make me wonder, how much is Mrs. Bennett acting? How much is that ridiculousness something that is really frothed up to to convey something? And how much of it is just something that she can't control any more than the circumstances that her children were born into?
2: Yeah, the question, you know, that I have... One of the questions that I have at the end of this novel is that Austin is always pointing and laughing, right? Like that is her political move. It is pointing and laughing. And so the question, one of the questions to me is like, if we look back on this novel, what is she not laughing at? Who is she not laughing at? And why is she not laughing at them? And she's definitely laughing at Mrs. Bennett. But I think it is possible that Mrs. Bennett is actually having a reasonable response to an unreasonable world. The entail is not understandable. Mrs. Bennett doesn't accept it because it's ridiculous. And it is really nerve-wracking. And not only that, the text tells us Mr. Bennett doesn't want to be married to a not-silly woman. He gets off on this. And so like she's actually playing this marriage correctly. And so I think that Austin is pointing and laughing, but it almost feels refracted. Like she's like, look at that lady. Isn't she silly? But isn't it the world that's making her this way?
4: And of course, exactly what you said about being a reasonable person in a world that doesn't make sense. Like that is that is exactly why we have so many mental health crises If you were a person who is not given equal status and access in the world, this is part of the disproportionate weight of being disrespected and underrepresented in a capitalist society, in a racist society, in a sexist society. I do think it's really interesting that Austen waits until the very end of the book to tell us that Mr. Bennett likes it this way, that he would prefer her to be silly. It's it's such a reversal of what I think we have been taught about him and about their marriage until the very epilogue. What is that about? Why do you think she's doing that?
2: It's also so strangely written, right? Perhaps it was lucky for her husband that Mrs. Bennett stayed ridiculous, who might not have relished domestic felicity in so unusual a form. That It's actually unusual to have two not ridiculous people in a marriage and have a marriage of equals. And he wouldn't have liked that. He likes this power imbalance that is actually more normal. It is the most my hackles have been raised at the potential of it being misogynistic. Like women are always a little ridiculous in a marriage and Mr. Bennett doesn't want his marriage to be an exception. I don't know what to make of it.
4: It's also bizarrely like the most convoluted sentence in the entire book. I, right? You have to read it over and over and over to figure out, wait, does he like it this way? Doesn't he like it this way? <laughs> and, you know, it's a. this is a chapter where things are laid out in this incredibly cleared way. But it's almost like, you know, it's the end of the first paragraph of this chapter. It's like where your thesis statement would land. And it is the most convoluted thesis statement in the entire book.
2: I mean, the only thing I can think is that to the extent that this book is from Lizzie's perspective, at least a little bit, which one of the things that our Patreon reading group came up with is that even when it's not from Lizzie's perspective, it's from like within a mile of Lizzie's perspective, like it never goes very far from it. And it it's possible that Lizzie has now recognized this, that she is now like, Oh, this is part of their dynamic. My dad is an asshole who likes to feel superior to other people. And this is part of their shtick. My dad's an asshole who just wants Lydia out of the house. My dad's an asshole who X, Y, and Z. And so to the extent that this is from Lizzie's point of view, it is, I think, possible that she's only now realized it. She is in a marriage of equals. And so she's now looking at her parents' marriage differently.
4: So... You know, the the book really heaps a lot onto Mrs. Bennett's influence over Lydia and Kitty. We obviously know where Lydia has gone at this point in the book, though it is still worth some time and we will spend it. But Kitty, Kitty's really interesting here. Kitty, we find, is less ridiculous. And that is credited to the distance of Lydia from Kitty. You know, like the situation in which the younger sister has made the older sister ridiculous. And yet we also find that Kitty is farther and farther away from Mrs. Bennett spending more time with her sisters and... I do wonder if that is the real influence, if that is a way of saying, yeah, it's Mrs. Bennett who made Lydia ridiculous in this way by this constant immersion in what all of her anxieties and priorities were. That's how she shaped her youngest daughter. And it's not really Lydia's influence we need to be worried about here, but it's Mrs. Bennett. She's not going to do this to Kitty now.
2: Yeah, I I love that. And I love that it does end with a little bit of an indictment on Mrs. Bennett in that way, that Kitty, it turns out, is impressionable, isn't strong-willed in the way that Lizzie is or that Lydia is, and she's more impressionable. And therefore, who you place her next to is going to matter to her character development. And the book definitely takes a stance that it is preferable that she spend time with Lizzie and Jane than with Mrs. Bennett. And I mean, Mrs. Bennett, for all of the ways that I love her, I want more for for Kitty than what Mrs. Bennett has. Mrs. Bennett has a marriage that is based at least a little bit on contempt. We find out, you know, and Lizzie and Jane have like a marriage of like strong mutual respect and affection, and so if that is what Kitty is going to learn to expect from a marriage by being around her sisters rather than her mother, I certainly want that, and we know that Lydia ends up like her mother insofar as she ends up in a marriage where her husband holds her in contempt, right? We find that out at the end of this chapter, that their regard for one another lasts a little bit longer for Lydia than it does for Wickham, but he, you know, dislikes her pretty quickly.
4: And that the threat of poverty hangs over their marriage in a very immediate sense, even more so than it does over the Bennets. That feels like another Sad, amplified inheritance.
2: But Austin doesn't have as much sympathy for their poverty, I don't think, as she does for the Bennets. She implicates them in their poverty, right? That they always overspend, and that Wickham, even though they're poor, still goes to London to have a good time every once in a while. It does seem like Austin is is morally judging the Wickhams for their poverty.
4: Oh, they are sinners. They are the definition (laughs) of sinners. (laughs) Exactly. And I struggle with this. You know, teenagers should get to be sinners. Teenagers should not have to be saddled with the, the outcome of that sin for the rest of their lives. And honestly, had Lydia sinned with someone less profligate, better landed, etc. I mean, honestly, even forget the, the profligate element. Like if Wickham had been a Darcy, if Wickham had been someone who had all of these same moral issues, but had been born into money, would this be an issue? Is the real issue that she was a teenager who fell in love with someone without money and therefore the rest of her life is punishment? It just it feels bad to me. And it doesn't feel bad when you read it because Austin writes Lydia as someone who is deserving of this fate. And it takes to me stepping back and thinking, what is really happening here? Who gets to be a teenager? Who gets to marry the wrong guy? Who gets to live a life without such crisis and without such crisis at early age? And it sure isn't Lydia.
2: But that is one of the things that I love about this ending is that it is an undetermined amount of time that Austen is showing us. It does stop before any of the sisters have children, which I think is really telling. Something that a lot of contemporary romance novels do is say like, and they had a baby and they were happy parents, whatever it is. And this stops very much short of that. So I, I don't think we see Lydia like, miserable with six kids trying to make ends meet, right? Like she's still welcome at Lizzie and Darcy's as long as Wickham isn't there. Both of them are still welcome at the Bingley's. They leave towns with debts, but Lizzie, you know, dispatches those debts. And I love that she's not truly punished. You know, the thing that I will take from this book that I hadn't seen before talking to you is the line, Lydia was Lydia still. And like, I always read that line as a condemnation, that it's like, she is unchanged. Can you believe her? But it's also like, her parents and family have made sacrifices so she can be Lydia still. They could cut her off in a way that she would be destitute and on that like dirt floor, on the side of the road, a Fantine or Miss Celine ending. And she's not, she's Lydia still. And Of course, I don't like that she's punished at all for a decision that she made when she was 15, 16, but I do love that the book, the book doesn't
4: fate her to like hell. It's true. She's still inviting Kitty to balls. It's just Kitty who's not allowed to go to them. Lydia has her freedom. She has her pleasure and you're right. It feels shadowed. It feels like there's, there's a menace on the horizon, but We've seen what a survivor she already is. And she has a wealthy sister. And this, to me, thinking about Lizzie and power at the end of this book, to me, the ultimate statement of power is that Lizzie can send Lydia money without her husband even knowing I'm not saying this is the recipe for a great marriage. Don't tell your (laughs) husband where the money's going. But, you know, in a society, and we have discussed this extensively during this season and even last season talking about Jane Eyre, you know, what it means to have independent access to funds as a woman, unless you're Lady Catherine, it's pretty unthinkable, And, you know, this is part of why I was excited to talk about pin money during our last episode is that's where it is. And that's really what's saving Lydia. And that's really, to me, where Lizzie's independence is, is she has enough money that she can manage it however she wants. And she can do with it whatever she wants. It may only be a small section of the wealth of Pemberley, but it is enough for her to be able to send Lydia money and not have to tell Darcy about it. And For a book that begins with a need for economic independence in a terrible situation for all of these daughters, that in many ways to me is the real happy ending and the real statement of power.
2: And it's a sign of love that Lizzie has for Darcy. Like, I'm not going to talk to him about this. He doesn't want his money going here. He'll probably say yes (laughs) because he loves me and he knows I love my sister. Like, I don't even want to bother him with this. And so I'm just going to use my money. I think it's a very loving and powerful and shrewd and knowing thing that Lizzie is doing. And generous. It's just like deeply generous, right? There is a version of this where she's like, screw you. You made bad choices. Your husband hurt my husband. Figure it out.
4: I see it as such an act of love for Lydia, but I don't see it as an act of love for Darcy. I feel like it's with Darcy, it's saying like, honey, you don't own me. You don't own me. This is money that is rightfully my money to do what I want with it. I do so much in this household. This has nothing to do with you. And perhaps that is part of a happy marriage is having that sort of independence. I think it certainly is. But but not telling him, I wonder about that as an act of love.
2: Well, it's Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I'm sure I've quoted this before on this podcast, who said like sometimes one of the attributes of a good marriage is being a little deaf. I think the inverse of that is, like, sometimes part of a good marriage is, like, not saying everything. And so, like, he doesn't need to know. (laughs) I, I agree with you that, like, also he doesn't get a say. But, like, there's no winner in her telling him. This is a secret that is better for everyone if it stays a secret. And this is not a sign of a fault in their marriage or that Lizzie has to hide something from him. It's, like, being a little deaf and not saying everything.
4: And I guess also having the power then to control information as well as money.
2: Yeah, yeah. I do love that for Lizzie.
4: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's
3: smartest kitty litter.
1: Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first
2: order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Here's
0: a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states.
2: We haven't talked about our fifth sister, though, the last of the Bennett girls, Mary. I mean, it tells us exactly how much she's changed and how much she hasn't, right? She still moralizes, but she is changed because she's no longer being compared to her sister's.
4: And this, much like the fact that Mr. Bennett likes Mrs. Bennett's silliness, feels like a reveal at the end of the book to me in certain ways. This this acknowledgement that she's been carrying, Austin calls it mortification of comparison to her sister's beauty. It's the most we've ever gotten inside Mary and the most empathy, I think, Austin shows us for Mary's circumstances. It feels painful. And it also... I think, of course, highlights how beauty is capital, not just in Jane Austen's world, but in the world. And that capital comes with a lot of freedom that we see Mary not having here. She's the one who's stuck with Mrs. Bennett. And part of that is her personality. Part of that is this moralizing ridiculousness that makes her so unbearable. But part of it is also because she's not the pretty one, that she needs to be the caretaker of the one who no one can stand to be around. And her only satisfaction at the end of this isn't having to feel like the ugly one in the household, at least, if she has to be in that household.
2: I mean, to me, it also hints that it's possible that she's not ugly, that she is pretty. She just had four exceptionally beautiful and charming sisters, right? It's just really hard to be around the popular girls. And some people know how to put themselves together and dress and say the right thing and be jubilant and not moralize. And Mary doesn't know how. And now that they're gone, it might turn out, you know, she put her hair down. She took her glasses off. Turns out she's been hot
4: all along, Lauren. And of course, the ugly duckling is only the ugly duckling in comparison to the other chicks. Exactly. If she could just put down Fordyce's sermons, I think that she could keep her glasses on and her hair up and she would just look like, you know, a million bucks if she could stop telling people how to live. <laughs> so her ridiculousness in the most important ways follow all the way through to the end unchanged. Yeah.
2: So Lauren, I'm wondering, we have both read this book before, but I'm wondering what you are taking away from reading it this time that you hadn't noticed before.
4: Well, like with Jane Eyre, it is a totally different experience reading this book with you and in conversation with you. And as I remember discussing with tears of gratitude in my eyes at the end of our previous season on air, you know what it means to read a book in conversation with another person is a revelation, and so there's an element of this where it's like, oh, I've never read this book before in my late 40s, having reported on structural inequalities and housing and gender. There are those elements, but there's also just what it means to to read the book with you, Vanessa. And for me, I think I have two different takeaways. One is, you know taking my time with this book with you, I I am seeing and feeling so much more about Lizzie and about Lizzie and Darcy and about Darcy. I mean, as you know, this is not one of my favorite books. This is not one of my favorite love stories. I've certainly said many, many times, Darcy is not my ideal leading man. But that said, this is the most I've ever loved him. It's the most I have felt and internalized his transformation, felt and internalized Lizzie's transformation, and not just found the chemistry between them for the first time, which always sort of fell on my deaf ears, but also really deeply feel the evolution of the two of them together. I know it's the whole point of the book. I know it's what I should have felt in every single reading, but I didn't. And it does feel like it is the first time that I am really understanding Pride and Prejudice. And then beyond that, really understanding the entail, really understanding the cultural crisis, really understanding all of the machinations that is really what underlies this book. And being able to read it and appreciate it as a social novel, even if it isn't written in a genre sense as a social novel, that has given me a totally different level of love and understanding of this book. Tell me, tell me what you have read differently this time.
2: I mean, this is definitely because I am reading the book with you, who has most recently written a book, a reported book about housing insecurity for women. But upon this reading, I was like, oh, this book is about Pemberley. And it's a joke, right? I have to say that I fell in love with him when I saw Pemberley. But it is a book about finding a house. And Lady Catherine, you know, forgives Darcy for marrying Lizzie because she wants access to Pemberley. And Caroline is nice to Lizzie because she wants access to Pemberley. And Georgiana gets to live at Pemberley. And like the measure of people is whether or not they are allowed access to Pemberley. Wickham bad, no Pemberley for you. Jane Good, you get to live near Pemberley, the highest praise. And to me, this moment where she looks at the house and is like, this is a career, you know, to be mistress of Pemberley, that would be something. I've always taken it as a joke, like, ha ha, she's a gold digger. You know, she doesn't love Darcy. She loves Pemberley. And it's not that. She loves him. But this is a book about finding a home. And the ending is she finds a castle and a fortress. And this is a book about... A woman who could be housing insecure in the way that we know that Austin was, and she finds a way to not be, and not not only to not be, but to provide shelter for others, right? Like Kitty can stay with her, and Mary can stay with her, and Mrs. Bennett is saved. They are all saved. And that is entirely because of you that I see the book in this way. But like, I'm so glad this is not why we named our podcast Live from Pemberley, but to me, this is the time that I was like, oh, it is about the property that is actually at the center of this.
4: Yeah. Reading, reading with an eye towards capital, capital and injustice yeah. all the time. Yeah. It's such a different experience and it's such a reminder, I think, that genre can be a delivery system for ideas, yes. right? That we we imagine something that is going to be a romance, to be something that that is not going to have a trenchant critique of systemic inequality that you know is not going to be about structural politics that it's going to be about this very sort of banal simple meeting of hearts locking of lips and In a world when the lips lock to make the next generation, to make the inheritors, when that is where power is consolidated, how can these things be any different? And I remember in the epilogue to my book, to This Is All I Got, I write, are we telling my protagonist, Camilla, that she should have been born to another family? Are we telling her son that this is what he deserves to inherit, is nothing but her poverty? These questions of inheritance, these questions of who you were born to, these structures may not feel like they exist in the way that they did in Regency England. And yet, look around us, they're always here.
2: Which, you know, gets to this question that we've had since the beginning of this season, right? Which is, why is this the book? Why not only is this the Austen book, but why is this sort of the novel that gets pushed into the hands of 15-year-old girls, right? Like, Why do we want this to be the story? And I think, you know, where I'm coming down on this is like, one, it's good enough that an English teacher wants to hand it to a 15-year-old and it's not trash. I taught ninth and 11th grade English during the Twilight Renaissance, and I wanted to pull Twilight out of the girl's vampire loving hands. And so, right, like you're just like, no, 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 this is right, this is the spoonful of sugar, but also it is the medicine, right? Pride and prejudice. And so I think that that's part of it. But I also think it is wish fulfillment, right? It is, as Elsie Michie says, right? Like it's not a fairy tale world, it is a world where there is risk, and therefore it resembles our, our world, but everything ends up okay. And like that is just so comforting. And like, what a wonderful place to spend any time. But I really think it is about being invited into seeing yourself in Lizzie, being loved for what you consider bad about yourself, right? Lizzie's impertinence and being given the world for it. And by someone smart, it is Austin handing it to you and saying you deserve it. And so it is not just the catharsis of the happily ever after. Part of the happily ever after is that Lizzie gets to feel seen and that we feel seen by Lizzie. And I think, right, like that's why this is the book. It goes down easy, even though it has all the hard edges. And it does to us what Darcy does for Lizzie. Lauren, is there something else, right? Like why, why this? It
4: could have (laughs) been. So many others. Well, I mean, okay, for a final Cranky Lauren moment. Yes. I do think that part of the why this is the problem with the canon. And I know this even as someone who works in, you know, publishing now as an author, that what gets picked up and passed around and lionized and preserved. it can be a bit of a crapshoot and there can be things that vanish because of, you know, the way that the marketplace is unfair, right? The way that things, some things get anointed, someone's going to marry into Pemberley, someone isn't. And part of that is being deserving Lizzie. And part of that is you just, you went to the right ball. And so for me, I have a totally renewed love and appreciation of this book. But for me, it it, it is not the book. That said, what this book contains to me, beyond any of the other things that I've already said, is Lizzie. And if Austen had not written the central character of Lizzie the way that she does, with that wit, with that satirical eye, with without the dirty hems and the obstinacy, I think I would feel very, very differently about this book. Because it's not just Pemberley that's aspirational. It's Lizzie that's aspirational. And when I think about this book, when I think about, you know, a moment that I just can't get out of my mind or my heart, it isn't actually even a moment with Darcy or Pemberley for me. It's her showdown with Lady Catherine. That's the moment in which I love Lizzie the most and want the most for her and want to be her more than anything, right? It It's her quick mind. It's her rejoinders. It's her unwillingness to be cowed by power or play the game, That, to me, is why this book lasts. And while the sort of Mrs. Darcy framing of things gets a lot of the attention, in the end, my heart just belongs to Lizzie.
2: Oh, Lauren, I love that point. I think that, yeah, I think it's just so important to remember that one of the reasons that this is the book that gets passed on from generation to generation is because of how canon is formed and, you know, it's luck and it's which college professors assign it. And it's right like all of these things that we can't control. It's not just 10th grade teachers pressing it into the hands of 15 year olds. And there are so many other books that are just as good. And for whatever reason, they aren't those books. But something that's really fun that has happened with Pride and Prejudice, given that it is one of the books, is that it now has its own canon. There are so many adaptations of Pride and Prejudice. And so we thought it would be really fun to look at some of those adaptations. One of the definitions of sacred that we have at Not Sorry Productions is that a text is generative. And people have definitely been treating this book as sacred for 200 years because they have been writing plays and movies and novels about just one character and different cultural retellings, different time frame retellings, a story of what it must look like for Mr. Darcy and Mrs. Darcy to now be married. And we thought that we would spend just a little bit of time focusing on some of those adaptations. Lauren, we are saying goodbye to you for a little while. You will be back to wrap up the season after we do these adaptation episodes, which I'm so grateful for. But it will be me in conversation with other people about some of the incredible adaptations of Pride and Prejudice. And there are many. I want to let everybody know that we are going to be talking about *Longborn* by Joe Baker in two weeks so that you all can start reading. And *Longborn* is not just one of my favorite Austen adaptations. It's just one of my favorite novels. I love it so much. I love it so much. So I think you're going to really love it.
4: As I shift from co-host to listener, I will be reading Longborn and listening. So I invite everyone to join me joining you. (laughs) It's so good,
2: Lauren. You're going to love it. So everybody, if you want to read along, start Longborn. In two weeks, you will hear me talking to Joe Baker about that fantastic novel. So we're finishing the book and we are wrapping up all of the loose ends. And we thought, why not just talk to one of the people who knows this book best? Why not get the expert of all experts to come and tell us what she makes of the end of Pride and Prejudice? So we called up Professor Claudia Johnson of Princeton University and we're lucky enough to get her back on the phone. Hello, Professor. Thank you for being back with us. It's always a pleasure to be with you guys. So we finished Pride and Prejudice, and your ideas have been with me the whole time. You were the very first person we interviewed for our research back almost a year ago. Mm -hmm. And I mean, first, I just want your thoughts about the ending of this novel, right? Like it is The first romance novel, this like Georgian novel that launched a thousand ships that we're still putting on Empire Waist gowns because of this novel. What do you think of this happily ever after? Well,
5: I actually think that it is the only novel that Austen wrote that is squarely within the comic tradition. Bullseye, right in the middle. It is happy. The word happy sings out From, you know, your happiness, my happiness, this would not conduce to my happiness. I would be happy. You know, it's totally about happiness and it is achieved. I don't think there's a wrinkle. I don't think there's a a dark spot. And it must be for that reason that it is so beloved. Mm
1: -hmm.
5: You know, the good guys are the rich guys are the moral guys, are the powerful guys. Do you know that intelligence, privilege, and virtue <laughs> are all neatly encompassed within that couple? And it is the miracle of Jane Austen's art that she made them credible and lovable. She would write a very different kind of novel next. Where the rich people are the bad people, you know, where the, you know, victim is also not so hot. And, and where, where authority and wealth and privilege and virtue are all disarticulated, you know, uh, from each other. But here, here they're not.
2: I couldn't agree more. I mean, like, you find out Charlotte is pregnant. Like, Charlotte gets a baby, which you imagine is going to make her life with Mr. Collins more fulfilling for her. Bingley isn't as ridiculous as we thought he was. He's actually this, like, good guy who Mr. Bennett is even going to approve of after a day of hunting together. And my favorite is that, like, the girl who ran off with the guy doesn't even get punished. She gets punished with a bad marriage, but she gets saved.
5: She is not punished. Lydia was Lydia still. Do you know, uh, she doesn't change. She doesn't learn. She's not embarrassed. She's not mortified. She's as happy as uh, she could be. Well, she wishes she had some more money. You know, it's true. But you know, in any other novel in the 18th century, she would die. But here, the words about punishing her are articulated by Mister Collins.
2: And that view is mocked. Yeah. I mean, can you tell me and our listeners the traditional definition of a comedy? I remember a little bit from my Shakespeare class that, right, like it ends in a marriage instead of a death. But you said that this falls squarely bullseye in the middle of a traditional comedy. What is a traditional comedy?
5: This is really complicated. Boy meets girl. Boy loses girl, We gets girl back. <laughs> you know, a, a traditional comedy is a tragedy that has an extra volume where everything works out, where problems are resolved, where youth rightly rebels against uh, senescence. Only here, the, the blocker of marriage is not an old man, the Senex in, in Roman. Comedy, but an old woman, so it's a little easier. A little, the the rebellion is a little less. Imagine if 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 um, Lady Catherine were a man. That you know his his defiance would would feel a little different, wouldn't it? It would feel maybe a little a little riskier. Uh, okay, so they you know they go against the older generation. Their love and desire is tested, is disciplined. By you know, by the twists and turns of, of fortune, and it comes back in the end. And it's a new world. It is a better world. It is a world where everything is in good order because of the, of the marriage that takes place. Well, does that answer your question about what happens in the comedy? That things come to a a pass in tragedy, and they end there. Do you know, yeah. they never come back. The the guys never come back. They they die in the ocean on the on a you know on a boat that you know that the collapse is is threatened. As indeed the the collapse of the Bennett family seems to be threatened at the end. No one will marry the daughters now that uh, that Lydia has run off. Right? Who will want them? And and lo, the crisis you know is, is averted by love. And one reason it's credible, I think, is because Mrs. Bennett still shows up. <laughs> you know? um, it's not as though it's a, a paradise, you know. The servants take advantage of Jane and Bingley. It's not utopia. It's happiness. That's, you know, so, I mean, I I don't have a kind of subversive reading, except I do think that it's stress on happiness, That's a a kind of progressive thing to say at that time. I'm not going to act according to duty. You know, it's not, I don't think I'm going to be a good Christian. You know, even though I believe Austin was a good Christian, that's not the point of a novel.
2: Okay, I have one more question for you. We talked to you a year ago about the first sentence in this novel, which is very famous. And I would like to read to you the last sentence of the novel, because I think it's fascinating please it ends with the gardeners they were always on the most intimate terms darcy as well as elizabeth really loved them and they were both ever sensible of the warmest gratitude toward the persons who by bringing her to derbyshire had been the means of uniting them what do you make of that last paragraph
5: the first thing i want to say is that the gardeners are really interesting the gardeners are fascinating because they're again unlike Man- mansfield park where you you don't know where to turn to find somebody who's lucid and so the the gardener's responsibility you know to kind of stand for good sense and reasonableness and a sort of good authority uh, that that Elizabeth can rely on when, alas, she cannot rely on either of her parents. <laughs> you know, seems really, really interesting that Austen ends with them, ends with the assertion that they're the ones who actually made this possible. By starring the gardeners at the end, I think Austen is, is kind of paying tribute to this ideal of Good judgment and conjugal happiness.
2: Yeah. The only other thing I think is that it's like a proof that Darcy's snobbery has been reversed, right? They get listed in his initial proposal as one of the barriers to his loving her. And if we're, I love what you're saying that this is like this radically imagined escape place Where like it turns out that the middle class people are actually awesome and gonna make your life better. Yes.
5: He takes the lesson. That's what you have to give to him. He you know, he takes the lesson, unlike somebody like Collins who who can't take a lesson. Yeah. To be perfectly honest with you, I I I never I never thought about the Gardness in terms of the ending before. And I'm grateful for you to steer me towards that.
2: Okay, I know I said last question, but one more. We've talked to you for almost a year about Pride and Prejudice. Our class is ending, it's the end of the semester. What is the thing that you're like, everyone, I need you to remember this one thing about Jane Austen or this novel?
5: Jane Austen values people who are capable of self-reflection. It's not just that Elizabeth is cute, you know, or beautiful. It's that she reads, for example. She talks, you know. Uh, she isn't afraid to to argue, you know. And 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 so is Darcy. And that the you know that the people who are capable of of converse and reflection are the valuable people you know are the people worthy of a narrator such as jane austen a person you know worthy of free indirect discourse so i would ask them to imagine that jane austen is narrating their daily lives you know and to try to have thoughts and reflections that are are worthy of 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 a narrator who could be so searching and so probing you know, of all of our little self-deceptions, or you know, prides or sore spots. Do you know that um, that's what you should take away? That that what's to be valued and, with any luck, uh, successful in this life, will be lucidity and self-reflection, being honest with yourself. You know, conversing with yourself, conversing with others, accepting the challenge of difference in argument that's what i would hope because that's what we love about jane austen don't we don't we love to hear them talk to each other (laughs) you know and argue with each other that's what happens those are my favorite scenes you know
2: in the novel yeah because the thing she hates is hypocrisy right like that's actually what she hates that's right and like you don't have to be a great student or anything to try to always try to not be a hypocrite
5: that's right that's exactly it and to and to recognize it when you are to recognize when you're fudging or recognize when you're contradicting yourself or being inconsistent or you should pardon the expression covering your ass about something you know it's not so much the commission of some sort of malfeasance that would bother Austin. It's it's staying with it, even though you know it's wrong. Yeah.
2: Claudia Johnson, thank you for being with us on this whole journey. Oh,
5: it, it is such a pleasure. I always look forward to talking to you. And I'm really sorry that this will be our last conversation about Pride and Prejudice. You must promise me that you'll do another novel I can talk to you about.
2: Okay. Yes. <laughs> You've been listening to Live from Pemberley. If you can, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash hotandbotheredrompod. And we'd love to remind you to please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We are a Not Sorry production. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman, and we are distributed by 8 Thanks, as always, to our Jane-level patrons. Baroness Gretchen Sneegas of Breakfast Carbston. Knight Molly Reilly of Worcestershire Sauce the Countess of Kristen Hall, Dame Leah B. of Pickleshire, Dame Becky Boo of Tiaralandia, the Marquess Tucker Crack of Seltzerworth, Duchess Lauren of the Tesseract, and newly appointed Right Honorable Claudia Hammerman of Penpalium. Thanks this week to Elsie Mitchie, Margaret E., and Claudia Johnson for speaking to us to Laura Glass, Margaret H. Wilson, Adria Ramos, Julia Argy, Nikki Zolti and Hannah Rehack, Courtney Brown, Caitlin Hoffmeister, Stephanie Paulsell, and all of our patrons.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods,
2: Hi, everybody. I'm dropping into your feed to let you know that starting June 23rd, you are invited to a class called Discovering Your Own Patron Saints, a guided workshop with Natalie Folkerts. In this six-session class, you will explore beloved characters from literature who have jumped off the page and made their way into the moral fabric of your life. The first week of this class you're going to explore what we mean by patron saints and then each subsequent week will be devoted to a different value wonder imagination grief and courage if you are seeking spiritual guidance outside of the constraints of formal religion if you are someone who finishes a novel and feels like you have said goodbye to new friends then this class is for you register before the first class on june 23rd by going to not that's n-o-t-s-o-r-r-y-w-o-r-k-s.com